Hello and welcome to Campaign Comrades, your favorite Let's Us gaming podcast. I'm your host, Mike, and today we have a uh, little bit of a different episode. We're going to be doing a topical uh, dive into, you know, the state of labor in gaming. And I'm here today with my co-hosts. How's it going, guys? I'm Ben. Me, Matt. What's up? It's Rick. Me, Matt. Nice to meet you, man. I'm not familiar. So have we met before? Pleasure seeing you here. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> All right. So today, like I said, we're doing like a little bit of a topical episode. You guys have, you know, our listeners have heard them before, but this time we're focusing on labor and gaming. So, you know, how we're going to work through this today is, uh, you know, talk a bit about the state of uh, labor in the U.S. kind of writ large, and then uh, you use gaming as a case study of the harms that have been done to laborers, to workers uh, in the current American structure, and you know, use this as a case study to show uh, through these, you know, up and coming kind of movements of solidarity amongst workers in that sector, like how other industries uh, could use that as a model and you know, build solidarity of their own. We're gonna kind of work through uh, quickly. So you don't have to listen to my voice drone on forever. Just like the state of, of U.S. labor. Because I, I, I see uh, on the internet a lot of people you know, misrepresenting how labor solidarity is built in this country and kind of misrepresenting how the law uh, works and not understanding how it is structured against us. People have kind of heard of the misclassification of labor, um, and I'm sure everyone here has heard of it with like the issues with Uber misclassifying uh, their employees as like independent contractors when they're you know really doing the work of an employee, and it's a way to cut costs and, and eliminate benefits to the workers. Um, but another issue that I think some of us here, you know, I know I have been a you know a victim of it the misclassification of um, employees themselves is uh, another one that has been going on at, at least in the past 20 years i think it's worth asking like misclassified according to who right yeah and like you know that's that's a big point uh yeah and you also you also mentioned you know the idea of how to like of labor solidarity in this country. I think that's kind of funny at this point in time because realistically there there isn't any labor solidarity in this country currently. Like we we are starting from pretty much close to zero. The 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 ruling class has really done a good job to eliminate that, you know, as you said, through through these laws and the, the things that we're we're talking about in this episode. Yeah, no, it's set up set up to fail. You know, there's hundred percent is very little ground to stand on and that's you know it's designed to be that way the system is functioning exactly as it's intended that should never that should never be forgotten this is not this is not like a unforeseen concept not a bug it's a feature there you go exactly and the only quote-unquote unforeseen consequences are like the new and novel ways that uh you know the ruling class tries to you know kind of recycle the squeeze yeah as much that they can and a lot of times when you look at it it's frustrating because it they are just recycling something else into like a new application and you know you almost kick yourself for not seeing it there definitely are people that do see Uh it um some of which you know get ignored um 
Yeah. And so to Rick's point about, you know, labor solidarity at zero, it's, you know, almost arguably at an, at a negative, we're starting from, you know, a, a negative point, having to fight these, these structures that are just systemically preventing us from, from building that solidarity. And I think, you know, one of the funniest, uh, outcomes of kind of the, the miseducation of workers, uh, within, uh, the U S economy is, these, you know, cause I'm an internet freak as many of us are here, just see, seeing the <laughs> general strike Twitter, uh, organizing that, you know, mm. the idea that we're me as an idiot, me as an idiot who has no like, uh, history or experience with labor organizing can see how fucking stupid and short-sighted that. Yeah. Is. And <laughs> you know, that the idea of a labor strike where everyone could just like you know, take off a day of work and cause some, you know, big disruption, disruption to the whole economy. You know, that only happens if both the workers and management are starting at zero, but management is, you know, a thousand times ahead of us um, because they have the control right. and have, you know, and have, and have for decades have continued to, they have, they have, they have built this power in a meaningful exactly. way. You know, they, they are executing power in the way it should be you know, in a, in a way that is effective. It's not, you say, it's not something that can just be picked up and thrown down. It is a process that is, uh, yeah, decades, if not centuries in the making. I think, I think an interesting part of this that is maybe a little more unique to our fucked up country is the, like, how the stupid individualism that a lot of people, like, put and integrate into what they think about labor fucks with all of this because like it just keeps everyone a little bit more uh less willing to want to try and create these these larger groups because they feel like and they've been told and lied to that these larger groups are somehow going to result in them having less like individuality or personal freedoms or uh, you know, things that benefit them will somehow be taken away if they give into these like larger group ideas that like labor in organizing have always been associated with. Um, I think that's kind of unique to our country and and really also is a is a big factor in 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 overcoming it, in overcoming, you know, our current status and 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 actually effectively organizing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because every, everyone everyone else is out to get you. Everyone else is competition. You know, there is there is no meaningful exactly. societal connection today. There is so there is no understanding that you know, say, working together can actually get you more money. And I think that you pointed out, Rick, that you know, America has like a unique uh, history in this. That you know, we are the the only like comparable nation that doesn't have some strong make that definition you know, take it with a grain of salt, but like a strong union base. Um, you know, if you go over to Europe, like unions are still a thing. Like um, they're, they're have historically, you know, even with the erosion by the, you know, capitalist ruling class, there still has been a, a union presence where it's been, you know, almost completely eroded and just like relegated to like very niche categories of, uh, of the economy, uh, or, you know, the, the workplace that there are unions and they're typically like quote unquote unskilled labor. Um, and 
you know, that that's another taint to unions is that what we know unions as are like custodial unions uh, and things like that. So people associate them with, you know, uh, yeah, that, that unskilled labor union. Well, yeah. And then, you know, we've had, you know, where there are professional unions, it, the media has just, you know, for decades, uh, had a propaganda campaign them. against like how teachers unions and the fact that they have tenure is like preventing uh, your child from getting the best learning. Um, and, you know, the New York rubber rooms where we sent all the bad teachers because we couldn't fire them. But that is not a you know a structure of the union, but a structure of you know the management and the system in which you know we are hiring and 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 uh, you know keeping on those teachers. Uh, police union, good though. Always, always got to protect the boys in blue. These things compound on each other, right? It's like the the lack of union density is what makes uh, people more susceptible to the you know anti-worker propaganda because you know people have no experience with a union they have no one in their family who has had any recent experience like you know since the last time we had actual you know strong union participation all those people have died out it's like your great grandparents and shit they're all dead now like so they're they're no longer here to in the ground like hoffa yeah, they're 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 not here to you know like counteract the you know the agitprop. And like another you know because of the the lack of union density in this propaganda against unions, the the ruling class and you know management has been able to like perniciously slip in these different changes to the economy, to labor laws, uh, to hiring practices, to get things like independent contractors. Uh, you know, the next the biggest trend in in employment right now is like figuring out ways to get rid of employees and only hire independent contractors pretty soon. You know, I keep saying it, everyone's going to be an LLC. Like you are going to have to operate as an LLC and you are going to be like contracting out you as a business, your own labor, because that's, that's how they would like to set it up so that they don't have to pay any fringe benefits. They don't have to, be held accountable to anyone because you are your own business, you know, operating at an equal playing field with the larger corporation, even though, you know, in reality, the power balance there is ridiculous. You'll be coming there both as businesses, um, contracting freely, and, you know, you're just going to get fucked. This ability to, you know, what is called like fissure the workplace and, you know, the, the lack of union density not only changed, uh, like domestic hiring practices, but also just, you know, the outsourced, uh, you know, globalization process where, you know, there's a race to the bottom for manufacturing um, across the the world to find who has, you know, the cheapest labor and the least regulations. And, you know, though that won't be so much the topic of this episode, uh, because we'll largely be focusing on like the developers and the labor in that area of gaming, um, it, like it does well t- to note that there's all sorts of labor within the video game uh, sector that there's bad labor practices up and down. You know, you think from uh, gathering the cobalt to get the uh, you know the chips up and running, the labor practices in the Congo, uh, you know, were quote unquote labor yeah, practices. Exactly, <laughs> slavery, <laughs> yeah. cough, slavery. Uh, yeah. 
but you know that that's a product of the fissured workplace where you know you move away from this fordist model where like everything is domestically like created and produced with the resources available to like this globalized broken up economy where you know there's slavery happening in the the congo and these cobalt mines and say sony is distancing themselves from those practices because you know it's not in the contract they're not you know technically aware of it and they have like all these legal uh shields and veils that they could put in front of them to you know get away with this practice and still continue to exploit the labor yeah and just let's not forget capitalism as a whole requires the exploitation of labor to to successfully work like that's it, it is built on that i think this is again is a is a perfect uh snapshot of the contradictions inherent in capitalism at least the logical ones because what is the argument for having this kind of uh you know fissured uh post fordist industry right it's it's that it's the most efficient manner meaning it's the most efficient for yes. capital yeah. meaning it costs the most money not that it is actually the you know say the the cleanest the fastest the true when you get to the true sense of efficiency because think about like the the sheer fact of what how this has impact you know global emissions and things like that through the the sheer uh idiocy of yeah moving one like uh you know a nike shoe being being uh the pieces cut out in one factory in Bangladesh shipped to another uh, part of like China to sew this stitch and get the laces on another one. Like it's like crisscross the globe like five times, but because, you know, we have set up these systems so that the labor cost is it completely X's out all the extra cost of travel. It is therefore deemed efficient. Yeah, no, we, we, uh, it's never included in the statement, but essentially whenever you hear about efficiency referred to in these conversations, like they're not talking about real efficiency, they're talking about capital or economic efficiency, which is just like ultimately just driven by what you said, where, where is the lowest cost? Uh, so they're going to continue to go to those places and, and capitalize literally. What um, strengthens profit at all? That's yeah. it. Yeah. 100%. The only criteria, the only criteria. Yeah. And this is, you know, a symptom of, you know, what I, I will call the platform economy and there's different definitions for it. Um, it's also the treat economy is, you know, all plays into this. <laughs> Give me those treats and, or all right. It's just like at its core, um, calling it the treat economy or like the discussion of the platform economy is kind of just like a new way of looking at, uh, a new descriptive way to look at our economy because you know the the descriptions that we apply to what has actually happened don't fit what is actually happening in the economy um so you know it's so to say labor has this cross section of like antitrust and you know the current uh underpinnings of our you know american economic system that uh you have to attend to at all instances and this is why a general strike will not work you know you cannot just pick up and leave that and so you know i think this is a good segue into the gaming industry um itself you know that is not to say that strikes and labor solidarity will not work um so you know we've seen an uptick in the 
gaming industry and like labor coming together, building solidarity and, and tackling some of the issues uh, that they've been dealing with, whether it is like these more pernicious um, kind of like built in systems, uh, legal systems that have an effect on them or like their day to day interactions within the workplace um, that are also a product of, you know, uh, of of labor under capitalism and, and this idea of economic efficiency uh, and you know squeezing the most out of the worker. So you know first I just want to give a quick you know idea of you know what we've talked about just more specifically how it applies to gaming um, and then you know I figured it would be best to hear some of the firsthand experiences um, because none of us are in the gaming industry. Um, so I have some quotes that I've found of like, what is going on, um, you know, how, how these practices and are day to day affecting workers and, you know, these larger workplace practices, um, what harms they've, they've done and, you know, how those harms have kind of, uh, helped to bring people together, uh, and, and begin chipping away at the, uh, the power that, you know, capital has over us as workers. As we're recording this, uh, it's the day after the Raven software, uh, you know, had a vote on uh, signature cards to to ask for a, a true vote on the union. Um, those QA testers themselves happen to be employees of Raven software, um, but there are QA testers. Um, they're they're one of the the groups that is more easily susceptible to the independent contractor model. Um, because weren't, weren't the major weren't all the ones who were, you know, infamously fired by Activision, correct. weren't they all contractors? Correct. They were all independent contractors. Um, just, it's an easy job description to, to fit the independent contractor model because they're typically coming in for one game, you know, independent contractor in this sense is supposed to be like a consultant. So it was like built off this consultant model that like at least in this type of workplace, you, you come in, you offer your expertise for a project and then you leave. So you're just paying as a, a separate business person. So like, I don't, I don't, this is something that I've always, that I just don't understand with this though, is my thought was that in being a contractor, I guess, is it that you can't be told how to complete the work, Correct. but you can be told what to complete. Is that what the, the distinction is? Like, yeah, like, yes, that's kind of like supposed to be like the, I'll say colloquial distinction or, you know, like yeah. in, in practice, like that, that was kind of like how the independent contractor originated. Um, but then, you know, you bringing up another standard that, it, you know, is applied to um, the misclassification of employees. So, you know, you have to think of it at different levels and like tiers Independent contractors are their own business, per, you know, own LLC, whatever, um, that are offering their services to the other corporation, and they're, you know, they have a contract for work. Um, it could have, you know, a certain project, a certain time period. It could be indefinite, whatever. Then there, you know, there's employees which are directly employed by and and work for the company. But then within those employees, there's another misclassification that happens. Um, Rick, we're, you know, similar to this independent contractor employee distinction where it's like, uh, you can't be told how to do it, just like what to do. It's like uh, a lot of employees will 
be put in exempt positions where they have, you know, supposedly have more freedom. And usually those are people that are not allowed to get overtime because supposedly their salary is set at a higher rate. Um, sometimes by statute, sometimes, you know, supposedly just by like the market forces that this is supposed to be like a, uh, a higher level job, um, which you, you know, presumably have more experience or education for essentially you can manage yourself. But what happens is it, you know, largely gets used as a way to um, prevent employees from being unionized because the NLRB has, a, you know, taken those employees out of the pool that's eligible to unionize because they are considered management. And, you know, when there's like an actual union election going on, the NLRB will, you know, kind of pick and choose and maybe say like, you know, we don't think this position should be exempt. Like you're doing this wrong. And, you know, there's a negotiation, but, you know, largely that's going to be on, uh, you know, a case by case basis. You're still looking at the power dynamics there of like the company's lawyers versus the union's lawyers kind of arguing that point and why, you know, these employees um, should be in the exempt status of employees and therefore exempt from the union, you know, and, and that, that is one of the bigger issues um, within, you know, labor and gaming that we're definitely going to see in the Raven uh, software uh, unionizing. And are they, are they employees directly of, of is Raven a, a contractor or was it the, it was Raven contracting? Raven, Raven is a subsidy of Activision that had, so they had, I, I believe, and Ben, you might be able to correct me, they had QA testers that were independent contractors that got fired from Raven. Okay. From Raven. And the, yeah. I didn't know if it was Raven or Activision, but yeah, so Raven. Oh, and Raven. then these other QA testers who were not independent contractors, so they had the ability to unionize took unionization action so that they went on strike and now they're the ones working with Got CWA. It. Yeah. So we'll have more on them later. We'll work through some of the issues there, but in the meantime, I mean, the thing that's kind of scary about this is like, as you look at where, you know, what we've talked about in some of our other podcasts and episodes and like where the industry is going in terms of consolidation and what these larger entities are going to do, like, when, when does Microsoft start just uh, contracting out the game development of Call of Duties on a go forward basis? And, you know, they'll be paying half the cost of what they were paying initially to make those games, still making the same money. And, you know, what's that impact to you? Well, as, as, the, as the consumer, you're just going to get an even worse Call of Duty than what we've been currently getting, which well, already you might get it for cheaper at the same price. Yeah, you know while Microsoft continues to make a ton of money. Oh, and I think you bring up a good point. And um, I do think that that is a route that the industry is going to go, um, you know, from someone I know at a, an indie studio, he's telling me that, uh, you know, he was looking, you know, he's out in Silicon Valley now, but looking to move back home because they've gone a complete remote model and you know, and that's you know a move throughout the so industry. Doesn't have, doesn't have to live in like the most expensive place in the country. Exactly, and yeah. you know could afford afford to buy a home back, you know, by his parents or you know where he's from. Um, 
And, you know, that is something that this industry has had forever. Like a lot of these games, even these big name games, like developers aren't just in Silicon Valley. They're working with developers all across the the country. And that has just been like a trend throughout video games because and not just the country, not just the country. They're working with studios all over. Yeah, the I world. meant to say over all over the world. So thank you for correcting me. And and the reason they've, uh, you know, they've historically done that is because video games have been an international uh, form of entertainment. So they want to make sure that they could appeal to all. You know, it is like the perfect form of neoliberal capitalism. You're like watering it down to like the most. Uh, bare bones that everyone can you know it's like i said before it's the the least common denominator it's like something that is so inoffensive that it can't piss anybody off it's not that anybody gets excited about it it's that it pisses off the you know the least least, people and so like because they've historically had that that built-in structure that they were working somewhat remote in that you know they were working with colleagues all around the world now because of covid and you know the movement towards remote and you know them embracing that i foresee a you know another race to the bottom you know if if there is a lot of union action going on in the u.s well we're just going to get developers in india where there's no union action they work for cheaper they they work more hours and they give us the same quality work or diminished quality but you know a diminished amount that we don't care because it was the diminished quality we were going to look for our U.S. workers anyways, because we were going to milk, you know, whatever labor out of them. I mean, it's a diminished quality that because you're paying less, you can afford that because who cares about that value? Exactly, exactly. You, you, at that value, you can afford to QA test a little better when it comes across. Yeah, and I don't even think, I think, I think you're absolutely right that that's what the future looks like for this industry because you've seen that in other more mature industries literally the the i i'm in the financial uh industry and like we've you see companies literally firing all of their like in on staff accounting departments yep. like everyone that would do like the the journal entries all of that that is getting those people are being fired they're losing their jobs and they're being done by contractors in india because everyone there is they're able to work for literally like 25 cents on the dollar yep comparatively it's 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 a no-brainer from a capital decision and and an economic one and that as ben said at the beginning is the driver of all decision making at this point yeah and so you know i i just got i got doomer for a second but like i (laughs) (laughs) it's okay it's okay it happens it does it does um it happens yeah i i you know i don't see why they wouldn't Exactly. That's the thing that sucks about it. It's like, what's, why does, like, how, I mean, the only answer is we actually finally develop some sort of labor organization to change this shit. But, but like, you know, see how that goes. There's, if there's one, if this is already in the works, which I'm sure it is, that they, they're, you know, working to slowly outsource at the cheapest cost, they, they don't care if the Raven QA testers organize because, you know, okay, we have to keep a 25-person union in America, whatever. We're just going to outsource the rest to India, so it doesn't matter. And it's good PR for them, then. And it's good PR because they accepted a union. Yeah, exactly. So it's a win-win. All right. I might need to take a breather for a second because that just... 
that threw off the course of this episode. But but I but I think that was like that's a really important point and a you know a good thing to discuss. Um, so I'm glad it came up. But we're gonna go from doomer to I guess more doomer because we're gonna talk about the exact right. uh, you know workplace practices that are going on you know out in the open that are causing kind of this this unionization effort and, and historically have. So one thing I want to point out that I know I really appreciated and I know Ben said he did as well. This uh, series of articles that I, I pulled some of these quotes from, one of them that really jumped out at me that I wanted to hit at the top before we go through some of these other ones and, and discuss some of the out in the open issues is um, this article quoted a, a worker activist saying that within the, the industry and like within the labor organizers, they don't like calling calling it crunch. You know, we, we hear in the media, the, um, the gaming industry and, and their use of crunch, which is essentially just excessive unpaid overtime. Um, and, and that's the term that the, the organizers use. And I, I, as a, uh, a law student appreciate the preciseness of like what is going on. And I, I think it does, um, add to more of the weight and, and, and this activist had, you know, said that organizers don't use the term crunch cause it's too funky and it kind of, uh, infantilizes what is actually going it's, on. It's, it's cute and quirky. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a very like neoliberal, uh, marketing pr communications i mean yeah you, you you see you see uh studio leads like um using crunch as like a marketing thing it's like we had to like put in like 100 hour work weeks isn't that so cool we put so much effort into this let alone like all my employees are like having uh mental health breakdowns and like the uh, put getting put on suicide watch well and so you know one of the big problems in the industry because of this excessive overtime, and it's not a problem that the corporations see as a problem, um, but a problem for the worker is kind of the, the turnover of uh, developers within the industry. I have a quote here. And it, it's a quote that hits both on like the excessive overtime and the diversity. And so this, uh, this worker that's being interviewed says, it's a workload designed for young men without families or caring responsibilities who can dedicate their entire lives to the job. And indeed, the demographic of the industry bears this out. So then in the article, it says recent surveys of the UK gaming workforce found that a vast majority were young men, only 14% were women. And as far as workers of color, in 2015, they had made up a dis dismal 4%. In the United States, meanwhile, a 2019 study found that 19% of the workforce was female, while a slightly better 32% identified as something other than white. And then, when the appeal of working on games no longer trumps the desire to have a life outside of work, programmers leave and go into a different industry. Their skills might have been honed to make blockbuster games, but the same code that makes up the backbone of Red Dead Redemption, you know, also could be used in fintech tech, fintech uh, applications. For, for, for more money. So, yeah. you know, to me, you know, that's sad to see that people going into the industry, you know, one are just largely it's catered towards this one demographic and, you know, uh, structurally. So, and it's a demographic that may be going in because they think they're going to enjoy the work and then have to sell out at the end because. Yeah. It's, it's really kind of sick and twisted at the end, you know, it's cause it's something it's like relying upon 
the passions of its creators and just using that as a tool against them. It's just like, we are like, aren't you so lucky that you get to work for, you get to work in this industry to make uh, games, the things that you love more than anything in the world. Um, but here, that means that uh, you got to put up with these abysmal conditions. We need to work you to the bone, harass you. Uh, like if you're a woman, you like are going to be treated um, worse, you're going to be paid worse, you're going to not be given opportunities for promotion, and you have no ground to complain because you're doing what you there love. are 20 more, there, you're doing what you love, and there are 20 more recent grads who uh, also are just burning to get into the industry, and they will take this job at the, you know, at the, the drop of a dime, so you are, you have no uh, you have no point of leverage. And particularly, again, it's like when we are in this atomized workspace, we, we, we have to rely upon others. That's our only possible way to claw back any type of uh, autonomy in our workplace. And this is, I think, again, a pure one of the, the purest examples of, of that, because again, we're talking about people who want to be here. We're talking about people who, who have dreams and desires that are being exploited and manipulated. Yeah. And, and, and all that is happening for no, what's probably no real benefit to anyone except the shareholders, like look no further than the stories about cyberpunk uh, coming out and CD project red, all the crunch they did, that it's it's been a year that game's still not finished like what they did to those people wasn't actually worth it from any sort of creative or gameplay or development perspective it was purely from a monetary one right it's another it's another contradiction it is the fact that these these uh intense periods of un largely unpaid overtime um has no tangible uh effect on the outputs of the games it does not increase efficiency in fact there are so many reports and i think we've got quotes that i may be skipping ahead here but they in fact uh often end up introducing more flaws more mm. problems end up producing worse games and uh they again it's like they there's there's there was one story that we read where it's like they're in this persistent level of crunch and yet the project was always remaining on schedule yeah it had it had no effect on the schedule whatsoever almost like just, they planned it that way yeah for real well and like again to your to your point you just said there's in a lot of instances this, these things sometimes introduce more problems and and of course that's the case they're 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 overworked and they're working on things too quickly so you know garbage in garbage out is is a pretty true statement uh in most facets and same thing here like you can't if you're half asleep and working on four different things at the same time, the quality is just going to decline. I'd like to point out with your uh, Cyberpunk 2077 reference there that, uh, you know, that game went on sale on Steam and now all of a sudden the reviews are all positive and everyone's happy about the game again. So, you know, you know, to them, they're yeah. good. You know, they sold more of it. And, you know, it doesn't matter that the game isn't finished yet. You say, hey, I'm guilty. I bought it. It was on, yeah. it was on sale at a reasonable price. I bought it. I'll play it like in a, a year from now when maybe it's actually finished. And ultimately, like that's, the, the that's the, there's their success. Hurts. They got they got their sales. Right, right. They got they got me. They got yeah. me, man. They got their I got, sales. Their I stock got, prices got. up. It's like they're not even down from where they they lost some 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 of their their stock price did decline initially, but since then it's above where it was before they released the game because they still made a fuck ton of cash. Well, and I think, you know, back to the the top of this section talking about crunch and, you know, relabeling it, 
what Ben said, like it's built into the business model now. And they are, mm. they're being, you know, they're obfuscating it a bit, but they're being open about it with ads of like how much time they put into it. You know, well, you didn't, <laughs> you didn't put your money where your mouth is like, you know, you, you put a lot of time in it, but you didn't treat the people properly and there's still going to be bugs. And so I have another quote here uh, about the, the excessive overtime. Um, it becomes a circular problem. Hours stretch longer and longer as junior developers scramble to fix bugs. They get tired of the struggle and quit. And then a new person with even less practice is plugged into their spot. And the companies of ideas, idea of how to make the job more sustainable is put in a ping pong table and give out free food <laughs> let's put a bed in there Man, Sleep i want to work there put in showers yeah. uh studio gobo's website promotes gobo friday lunch with freshly cooked free food by our in-house chef and the only rule is that you're not allowed to sit next to the people you did last week Dude, that that is like some grade school fucking shit that that just weirds you me. You know, the if fuck my out. my Sorry. work Honestly. told me Honestly. that I wasn't allowed to like sit next to the people, I would just go to my car yeah. and I would eat in my car. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. It's like fuck you. I'm not participate. I would go to my car and like watch when, YouTube videos in my car and eat there. <laughs> I don't want your free when, pizza. When do they? When do they provide just like a private room for jerking off? Because like that's the next step, right? Yeah. Like they gotta do something. That's what that. the that's what the pods are for. <laughs> Don't take a black light uh, the in there. Pods. Yeah. So you haven't seen the strewn socks around the developer uh, desks. <laughs> Isn't that the joke um, so with anime the, studios? The the worker uh, being uh, interviewed here, uh, Aguaze. I think is his name. I'm, you know, I of course butchered that and I apologize, but he said that, you know, most of the time I'm just going home to bed and waking up to go back again. I don't remember what happened. I just remember going to bed and being in the office again. And I think like, not only for the gaming industry, that's a pretty apt description for, a, I think a lot of people's experience with working in modern America. I know, you know, that rung home for me, uh, with many jobs and, and when I worked at GE, that was uh, wake up at 3.30 in the morning, on the road by 4.30, get to work at 6, uh, work till 3.30, get home by 5, like eat, play games yeah. for like two hours, go to bed, wake up, start over. Yeah, and even the ability to have those two hours to play games, like you're privileged than most people. That's a, Yeah, that's a yeah. luxury. So that's those a luxury, two hours man. were eating into yeah. sleep time. That was taking away from... No, exactly. And like, oh, this is, you know, it gets in the news, this idea. And you're, and you're a single, and you're a single guy with no kids. Yeah. What do you talk about? Look at my fur kid right here. <laughs> <laughs> this idea comes up in the news a lot uh, with the, uh, with like Uber drivers um, and like DoorDash. Cause a lot of, especially in LA is a big one where a lot of those dashers or Uber drivers aren't from like la proper la county they're driving in like two three hours from the suburbs in order to drive somewhere where they can make money and they're like sleeping in their cars to do so or they go home just to put their head on the pillow to turn around and go back again um you know and well you know that is horrible that is going on in every industry in some form or another um and it just shows how, you know, capitalism continues to exploit the worker uh, no matter where they are. Yeah, it, well, you and you had mentioned something earlier when you said you talked about, you know, 
the demands of this job and or the the person talked about the demands of this job and who it attracts and it's like someone that can give their entire life to their job fuck that yeah. fuck that idea that idea is insane. every career no one should now. Give their entire life to anything no career no nothing it doesn't even matter no, no career no hobby nothing should be your entire life that idea is fucking gross i hate it it makes me so thank upset you, thank you protestant work ethic you have done a number yeah. on us Ugh. you but, mean well, making you know, gaming so- my whole life is a bad thing <laughs> and, but yeah and that's so that's only the case if you're playing the same game <laughs> yeah see with me like yeah i'm just playing different games just play different games there you go that's i don't have answer. a problem and, you have a problem <laughs> i could stop whenever i want and you know like in the gaming industry and in like silicon valley kind of writ large this idea of like you know we'll put in pods or we'll give you free food or you know nap time or whatever um we're a family you know we're gonna give you we'll have pizza parties yay don't you want your free yeah, pizza? Or, in the ca- or, in the, or in the case of that other company i forget Happy the name hour. of it the the fampany yes the fampany <gasps> where- yeah we're the fan. We're we're a fampany here. Fampany. Yeah, and like that—that's just that's a trend across all sectors. But you know, it just became it's a meme here, and you know that that is what you know the corporations that that's their form of virtue signaling. You know, in for labor, like that's how they're going to say, like, look, we are doing something to change our workplace culture. We're more of a family. Families don't discriminate against each other. Families don't talk about politics. You know, Mm. they don't they don't sexually assault each other. Uh, depending on your family I, you know these these families will you know beg to differ sweet whole um, alabama intensifies yeah. <laughs> but you know this idea that uh you know the, the one quote here says we make art we don't make politics and, and i think we could uh safely say here mm. the corporations are making no art the developers are and if it was the you know uh up to the corporations it would be washed of art completely but you know, there's this this idea of uh, like we said, watering it down so that we don't, you know, lowest common denominator. We can't make anyone angry. Um, we're not making any political statements. That comes out in yeah, yeah, yeah. No political statements yet in the last Spider-Man game. He's literally a cop. Yeah, exactly. He literally boasts about being Spider Cop. And so what that comes down to is no like. No political statements that are going to disrupt the uh, the current status quo. So we as America love licking the boot of cops, putting cops in, and you know, cops being the main focus of a video game is not political. But you know, a no, that's I think that's that's you hit that right on the head there. It's it's they're they're not afraid of political statements. It's about what what is what is our reality. That's that's just you know, say, it, is. it is. It's just what yeah. is. It's 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 not. Uh, it's therefore not political. Yeah. But uh, that's you know completely missing the forest for the trees. And so you know what I want to get to here, and what I thought was uh, why I like this interview so much, and why I want to pull it out is this organizer was part of the. Game Workers United uh, in in the UK, which kind of kicked off some of the the labor solidarity within the uh, the gaming industry writ large. So one point I want to bring up is just like this is an international project. This is an international project that we you know we have to uh, unite as workers across you know 
country lines and borders because well say as 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 socialists here you know we got to understand that you know such such mechanisms cannot exist within within borders cannot exist in one state they must be mm-hmm. you know comprehensive and just you know even on a practical level beyond that it's just these are model you know international models and while they may not exactly uh you know port over into the american system it's like you get ideas um you could you know, apply it in your own context, uh, there is a lot to learn. And so what what happened here in the the UK is there's it was across like UK, US lines. In 2018, there was a, I want to get it right, the 2018 Game Developers Conference in San Francisco, there was a, a panel uh, titled Union Now? Question mark. Pros and cons and consequences of unionization for game devs. And man, I wonder what those consequences yeah. were. I wonder, uh, <laughs> that's to me, that sounds like a very fair and balanced uh, panel right only there. the fairest and the most balanced. But yeah, I like, I don't think they totally wouldn't skew that one way. They you totally will get fired that. if you unionize. if you ask to be. <laughs> Exactly. So, you know, just on the title, we don't even have to like explain what went down in that, that, uh, that panel. And that kind of sparked this, what started as a Facebook group went into a discord group and then became a, a union in the UK, a recognized union. And I believe is what is going to be the, uh, and I may have gotten this wrong. We may have to cut this, but I think we'll be the union group under the CWA for video games. So it'll be Game Workers United uh, under the CWA. But, you know, so this Facebook group out of like, I'm assuming anger at the, at management's reaction to what was happening at Riot at the time, which is what we're going to jump into next. Um, 2018 is like the first year for uh, labor kind of kicking off some some action within the gaming industry in Riot, Q, I believe it was QA testers as well, started organizing and talking about a union, which ultimately, you know, did not form into a union at Riot. But that union talk made management kind of scared and put out a panel like this, which is just a like virtue signal, signaling centrist, like, yeah, we think, you know, workers' rights are great, but you should really know what union means because, you know. We hear you. We see you. You're valid. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But here, here's how I'm going to keep, uh, you know, just uh, squishing you underneath my boot. And, you know, but we can't break up the family and a union breaks up the family. I'm sure that was like the opening line of, of that panel because, you know, that's the management go-to. Um and so like the management's reaction to this kind of led to this group forming as a result, because they, they saw what, at least I think they saw what could, what could be as a union. And so, you know, though a union did not come out of riot and, you know, some of the, the reasons uh, that some riot organizers gave recently, um, it was actually when the riot settlement came out were kind of like the same story um, that you hear in a lot of sectors of like burnout from the organizers um, and, you know, management coming to the table and giving something, even though it was a virtue signal, like, you know, a pizza party or something that just workers being complacent with, you know, to me, that's a result of not knowing what they're worth. 
that they think that management could give them a pizza party and that's all they're out, they'll ever get. And that's good enough. I mean, I think that's been, I think that is the, the story of at least American labor is just like completely undervaluing themselves. We're all just like, mm, I'm not worth enough to ask for it because like, we just, we're all getting screwed over here. Like this is uh, not, not even questionable. Like who, who's benefiting while, while the employees are getting harmed. Um, Cause you got to defend what you got now. Yeah. Cause you have no, you have no security yeah that uh that you know tomorrow you may be without a job you may exactly and with bills to pay and expectations to be met and uh you know you're shit out of luck and that's something that don't rock the boat exactly don't rock the boat because even the process of gaining that security is going to put my life even more on the line and yeah threaten threaten the current current little amount you have exactly and and that's why a lot of unions die you know or like union precarity is a huge motivator but you know like i said though though riot didn't you know everyone was like riot's going to be the first union um you know this is going to be great it ultimately didn't happen and and that's kind of to be expected if the first like labor solidarity movement in a given industry yielded a union that would be a huge fucking win no matter what industry it is and so like you know that that's an expected first step that there there's going to be a push there's going to be momentum but it's ultimately not going to yield the final result but we're going to continue pushing and that's something that i whether the pandemic really like tipped the hand in this industry because of the new business model and the the of, of remote work and being able to further blur the developer's line of like work and personal life um that kind of like tipped it off or just like the natural momentum of the movement you know we've seen post those riot walkouts in 2019 post the the riot uh action in 2018 this game workers united group starting in 2018 you know we've seen a lot of a lot of progress and you know the day before recording this we've seen raven uh software get the 30 percent signatures needed to you know, begin the unionization process. It should be noted that the percentage was higher than. Yeah, that. Th- I know. I know you're saying that's the that's the yeah. threshold, but it was. I think it was closer to like say, 70 it was a, or above. It was like 74, yeah. something like that. Um, which is great, and you know, and not only that, that we see this unionization uh, effort happen. We saw um, Vadio become the first video game union in North America, and. You know, I bring those two up because they show kind of two paths to unionization um, in this industry. And obviously, one is a small indie studio, Vadio, and the other, you know, one of the, you know, as of this recording, potentially purchased by the third largest video game uh, developer or studio in the in the nation, um, Activision being purchased by Microsoft. Two two different routes to what unionization could happen, but I see Rick, you got something. Yeah, yeah, no, I just wanted to add that I think you, we've kind of been doomer pills, but I do think um, there's something you said there that I I've I thought was interesting, and in that COVID has kind of helped and tipped the hand a little bit on, on these things, and I think uh, just as a whole that the ability of workers in these 
you know, I think, I think if we're going to have a real labor movement, it almost has to come from these more like white collar jobs first, because you at least have a little bit more leverage where you need people with degrees. And like, there's just a little bit less of a labor pool to immediately farm these jobs out to. But um, I think that the separation and ability of like people to work from home has led to a little bit less Kool-Aid drinking um, at like these corporate levels because they just don't have the ability to be as in your face with that shit when you're working from home. Uh, so I think that's allowed people to feel a little bit, A, a little bit more like they are just these the corporate slaves they are, and B, that they have the ability to uh, build some leverage and have some of these conversations about these experiences and how it, it has been negative and how there's certain things that do suck about work in, in the current environment. Um, so I, I do have, you know, some positive feelings about what, what our new work situation and as, you know, this pandemic continues to grip the, con- the country and globe uh, does with that. Say so no, no captured audience meetings when uh, everyone's working from home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Who knows who's doing a tube in behind that Zoom screen. <laughs> <laughs> so in this industry, we, we've seen these these two routes. And so I'm just going to go through them quickly um, because I do think it's important. And I think it's going to mirror what we see in the industry as a whole. Vadio being a very small indie company, they had the, the vote for the unionization. And so you need to collect signature cards. It's essentially like polling your workers in order to see if, you know, what the... Uh, the desire for a union is if you get 30%, you go to the, the NLRB, say, I got my 30%, and we're going to ask the company to voluntarily accept this 30% or higher and voluntarily accept the union because we have, you know, we, we have shown the desire and, and, the, and the workers clearly want this. A small company like Vadio and, and the management correctly said this was in our best interest to form the union and not fight it. One, like we don't have the resources to fight a union. They obviously fit like the criteria and, you know, we support our workers. So they accept it. And I think you'll see some indie studios not put up too much of a fight if, if unionization comes about and and that'll vary from studio to studio. But I think that more and more smaller studios will understand and have an easier time unionizing. Big corporations like Activision, Activision, we're going to go the second route where not only are you going to have to have this polling, you'll actually have to hold a union vote. Um, and in doing that, Activision is going to use all of their resources to whittle down the union to be as small as possible and completely say, you know, as small as possible to say that there's not enough people to even be in the union. Like that is their ultimate goal to kick it out. And so whether the vote is 100% for unionization, Activision is still going to, you know, uh, work to whittle it away because they don't want the liability uh, of having a union on their staff or uh, in their company and, you know, potentially causing more unionization within the industry and company. But on the flip side, as we talked earlier, if they're going the business model of outsourcing to India, maybe they'll, you know, they'll fight it to 
you know, ultimately show their shareholders that they're fighting it and trying to keep costs down, but then accept it for a PR win um, only to outsource later. So, you know, I, after this episode, I'm a little doomered and who knows, but, <laughs> you know, that, that will be the process. There's no way Activision is voluntarily accepting it like Vadio did. Um, so, you know, and this process will drag out probably right up to when uh, Microsoft and Activision's purchase uh, is, you know, set to go through. I do think that's an interesting distinction. Um, I, I do feel that indie studios kind of have a leg up in them being smaller, more self-contained. Not that like I'm advocating for like, oh yeah, they are a tight knit yeah. kind of family unit type of thing. No, it's the fact that they realize that they are, they're forced to value their employees more because of the nature of how indie studios work compared to big developers where, uh, there are such fewer people in indie studios, so people have to wear more hats, yep. you know, so it's harder to replace somebody. They are more valuable. They are worth keeping around and keeping happy. Whereas in a AAA studio where you just have a shit ton of contractors who are like just working on 3D modeling the a barrel for to go on this pod map, you know, that person is easily replaced. Yeah. You know, that person can be replaced in a fucking heartbeat. So they, again, have their precarity is much greater. Well, I also think that, um, you know, not trying to advocate for in any way for like a family uh, culture within any sort of corporation, but indie studios can actually cultivate a culture other than, you know, like the harassing culture that big game studios develop. But that is just like... That yeah. is the culture of misogyny that happens. Gamer culture. So the, cult, the, culture of viol, the culture of violence that is just endemic to our yeah. society. So that yeah. is separate. But like you could cultivate a, you know, I'll say a positive culture, and, you know, or a culture that you want within an indie studio. So you can, in, in knowing that people are going to have to wear multiple hats, it's like you're going to bring in people that you know are kind of like like-minded to you that have these abilities so that, you know, you already have people that may be uh, turned on to the ideas of unionization. Whereas in Activision, you know, you have or the gambit from, you know, uh, your libertarian incel Reddit user that is doing some sort of modeling you know, for one game all the way to, you know, your crunchy anarchist, blue haired, uh, you know, feminist uh, on the other end. So like, you know, you have a, a large swath of people in this huge corporation where, um, you know, like I said, the, the culture is going to be much more like uh, nebula nebulous yeah. and, you know, undefinable. Exactly. Yeah. That's a good, no, that's just the practical reality. And, and yeah. that's why you good run point. into people that, you know, are you're more likely to find people that are going to be like apathetic uh, in those bigger yep. cultures than you would at an indie studio. Um, and again, like I don't think every indie studio is going to voluntarily accept. Um, there's yeah, you yeah, know, a lot of them are still going to try to pick away um, at who is uh, who's exempt from the union, who could be in the unit, things like that. Like, you know, lawyers are always going to hash that out. It's the degree that they're going to be hashing it out, how long it's going to go, how many people are going to be exempt. And, and I, I would guess, you know, an uh, indie studio head could be more likely persuaded that a union is going to be, you know, 
a benefit to them or at least like not too much of a detriment that they'll be more likely to accept it where Activision, Microsoft, whoever, you know, it's the same thing with Amazon. They have the resources to fight it. They're going to throw everything they can at the matter to stop it. Um, again, unless they decide to accept it and just outsource to India and take the PR win. But, you know, we'll see what happens uh, there. But, you know, I think that's kind of like where I wanted to wrap it up, um, kind of get us up to date. Just like didn't want this episode to go too deep into it but just kind of give a good overview um but i just want to kick it to yeah because these are these are issues that are going to evolve and that things that we're going to talk about a lot hopefully over the future of the podcast so yeah this was a good good ground exactly baselines (laughs) you know get out some of our ideas our our ideas on the on the subject um but yeah so if if you guys have any thoughts anything you want to add any takeaways um yeah go for it just I always say solidarity with any, uh, you know, any developers that are pursuing unionization to remember that this is a process. The, there are those that are more knowledgeable that you should, that they should be reaching out to, and we should not be expecting immediate wins process of building power, Um, building that solidarity. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, we said that earlier. Yeah. It's like, uh, we are, we on the left are, unpracticed in the wielding of power uh let alone the building of it so this is like there's a tendency particularly along the online left to you know put the cart before the horse kind of thing with you know it's just you know we see we see people online are agreeing with us so there must be this groundswell of support we got 500 likes that's not how that's not how let's say that's not how uh things work and it's like we are fighting such an uphill battle that uh you know we've got to be cautious at every single step of the way and have to be uh kind of building up those bulwarks against again the institutional power that is just uh a a reality and and to that point i think um you know mark set a good example of this you need to understand the the power you're up against like you need to understand the workings of capital before you can try to dismantle it otherwise you know you're going to run into more issues and and part of the reason i wanted to do this episode is um to bring up some of the other issues that intersect with um uh, labor uh you know antitrust the economy that have uh effects and consequences for actions done by laborers Um, and i think that's something that you know the online left forgets you know if you tell a a bunch of uber drivers to take a day off or you know demand higher wages you know you you know not only are these there practical consequences to them of like missing the day off work and you know their their income etc um you know you're potentially putting them up against antitrust liability that you know they don't have they don't know about you don't know about and there's no structure to defend them against um if action were taken against them um, so I think that's something else to to remember. We need need to deeply understand what is going on and what could be used against us as uh, as leftists. All right. So I think that is it for today. I hope everyone enjoyed. Till next time. Peace. Bye. Bye.